April 1954, Seattle. University of Washington researcher Harley Bovey strapped safety goggles to his face. He examined two pieces of safety glass in his laboratory. Both were windshields that had been detached from cars. For weeks, Washington's state officials and journalists had speculated about what was damaging ordinary people's windshields. An epidemic of dings, dints, and pits had swept through the state. Other university staff had offered their own guesses, but Bovey took a different approach. He wanted to see if he could discover a culprit by creating divots of his own. Using a mist sprayer, Bovey coated one of the sheets in hydrofluoric acid. He likely wore thick gloves, well aware of how much trouble he'd be in if a drop of the corrosive chemical landed on his skin. Once done, he set aside the spray bottle and turned to the other pane. He coated the second pane with resin. The syrup probably wouldn't eat through the thick slab of safety glass, but Bovey needed to rule out all possibilities. A short while later, he checked on the experiment. The windshield he'd coated in acid didn't seem to be dissolving. If anything, it looked shiny, almost like he'd polished it. He examined the second glass sheet. Where he dabbed the resin, the glass had become warped. And in one spot, the goo had eaten a hole straight through the pane. The mark didn't look exactly like the other pits motorists had reported, but the discovery was still an important clue. The unexpected chemical reaction meant that even inert substances might be able to pit windshields, which meant the answer to his mystery could have been almost anything. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on Seattle's broken windshield epidemic. In 1954, a rash of inexplicable windshield cracks and holes appeared on cars throughout the Pacific Northwest. Last episode, we discussed the start of the panic in Washington and how it spread as far east as Ohio. We also explored some of the improbable possibilities proposed by the media and government officials at the time. Today, we'll examine some more likely explanations, and we'll discuss whether this epidemic could have had multiple causes. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. March 23, 1954. In Bellingham, Washington, people noticed small blemishes on their car windshields. Initially, the police dismissed the stories. But after more and more cases were reported, officials leapt into action. The bulk of incidents happened during the week of April 14th, when news of the pittings reached Seattle. The same day the first reports appeared in the papers, Hundreds of calls flooded into the local police department. Within one week, people in Oregon, Illinois, and Ohio all reported the exact same marks on their cars. But right as the phenomenon reached a fever pitch, the epidemic just petered out. By April 17th, it was over, almost as quickly as it had started. Nobody knew why the pits had stopped or what caused them in the first place. Authorities had ruled out vandalism, meteorite strikes, and damage from resin used in the manufacturing process. They weighed and ultimately dismissed some outlandish explanations, including that the windshields had sand flea eggs embedded in the glass. But some possibilities seemed more likely. Many in Washington state suspected radio waves coming from Jim Creek Naval Radio Station were to blame. Lying approximately 60 miles north of Seattle and south of Bellingham, this military communications site sent one-way communications to submarines in the Pacific Fleet. Jim Creek is still a strategically significant military site today. Should a nuclear war ever break out, the station would signal nuclear subs to launch their missiles. Given its important and often secret military functions, it's no wonder that Washington residents suspected there might be more going on at Jim Creek. Perhaps its mysterious low-frequency waves somehow pitted civilians' windshields. When radio frequencies traveled to the Pacific Fleet, they caused tiny oscillations in the atmosphere. They were subtle enough to evade traditional radio transmitters or human ears. But maybe they were strong enough to break glass. We know this is possible with a different kind of wave, sound waves. Radio waves are electromagnetic waves. And in simple terms, sound waves and electromagnetic waves are both traveling vibrations. However, sound moves through mediums like water or in the air, while electromagnetic waves transfer from atom to atom. For example, light is an electromagnetic wave, and it can travel through the vacuum of space. Sound waves can shatter glass. Think of your favorite opera singer breaking a champagne flute with their voice. This is possible because every object has a certain resonant frequency, which is the speed at which its molecules vibrate. If you sing at the same resonant frequency as glass, 
that could blast the particles apart. Maybe Jim Creek's very low-frequency radio waves vibrated at the same resonant frequency as windshields, cracking them. But remember, windshields aren't made of traditional glass. They're safety glass, which is reinforced with laminate. So it's possible that the plastic casing held the pane together, and instead of shattering, it pitted. The problem is we know that radio waves don't behave this way. They typically pass through glass. They don't shake it or even bounce off of it. In order to get a radio wave to interact with glass at all, it would need to operate at a higher frequency, unlike Jim Creek Naval Station's ultra-low broadcasts. Even if the radio waves could have caused the chips and holes in the windshields, they probably wouldn't have discriminated between types of glass, whereas the pitting epidemic definitely did. Nobody reported any kind of damage to their windows, storefronts, or any other kinds of glass. Each car's rear windshields remained unscathed. Not to mention, nobody reported any pitted glass in Jim Creek itself. If the Navy base was the epicenter of the pitting, then it should have had the worst cases of damaged glass. So it seems pretty unlikely that low-frequency radio waves had anything to do with the pitting epidemic. But the military conducted plenty of other experiments. Perhaps they'd released something else into the air, like a dangerous chemical. Washington law enforcement noted that hydrofluoric acid can corrode regular glass, but they weren't sure if it could damage safety glass. Perhaps the chemical somehow escaped from the base and unwitting motorists drove right through it. Fans of Breaking Bad will recognize hydrofluoric acid from an iconic scene where the protagonists use it to dissolve a body. The show exaggerated some elements, but the chemical is corrosive enough to eat into flesh, glass, bone, and even porcelain. For some, like University of Washington researcher Harley Bovey, it didn't seem like that much of a stretch to think it could also pock safety glass. He tested this hypothesis by spraying a windshield with a dangerous compound, but he found it didn't eat away at the glass. In fact, the acid polished it, so he ruled it out as a possible cause. That was probably for the best. If gaseous hydrofluoric acid was wafting through the Pacific Northwest, locals would have much bigger problems than marks in their windshield. According to the CDC, exposure to even small amounts can cause intense irritation in the eyes, nose, and throat. If ordinary people had been traveling through clouds of acid, they would have gotten seriously ill. But nobody did. At least, not right away. But maybe they were exposed to something that took a lot longer to produce symptoms. The mid-1950s were marked by countless military experiments as the United States competed with the Soviet Union for global dominance. It's possible the American government inadvertently pitted the glass during nuclear weapons tests and in the process unleashed something more dangerous than they'd ever anticipated. Coming up, we examine whether the damaged windshields could have been caused by atomic tests. 
Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. And now, back to the story. In April 1954, pits, holes, and pockmarks appeared on thousands of windshields across Washington. Nobody knew what had created them, but possibilities ran the gamut, from radio waves to clouds of caustic acid to nuclear fallout. At the time, the U.S. and the USSR were locked in an arms race. As displays of strength to the entire world, each country tested increasingly more destructive nuclear bombs. And while they did, scientists were still learning about radiation's environmental effects, some of which they found were unpredictable. For example, they discovered it could interfere with geologists' measurements. Historians measure how old artifacts are through a process called radiocarbon dating. Simply put, carbon decays at a predictable rate. So by measuring the amount in an object, paleontologists and archaeologists can determine their age. The technique is commonly used to date remains, ruins, and bones uncovered by archaeologists. However, the traditional methods used for radiocarbon dating could no longer be used after 1950. This is because the fallout from weapons tests during the Cold War drastically increased the levels of carbon-14 found in the atmosphere. And it changed far more than carbon levels. People who worked with the weapons often developed cancer and other health issues. And a few tests ended in disaster. March 1st, 1954, almost a month before the first pits appeared, the United States conducted their most dangerous nuclear weapons test yet in the Bikini Atoll. Lying almost 5,000 miles away from Bellingham, Washington, this minuscule coral reef was a popular site for atomic research. The U.S. government had moved about 40 families off the island in 1946 and subsequently used it as a detonation site. The experiment on March 1st was codenamed Castle Bravo. Military personnel and scientists anticipated the blast yield would be about six megatons, roughly 300 times the strength of the Hiroshima bombing. So they planned accordingly. They cleared the area around the anticipated blast zone, over 60 nautical miles, and prepared for an explosion larger than anything the world had ever seen. But when they detonated the device, the payload was larger than anyone expected. Later analysis revealed that Castle Bravo unleashed 15 megatons, two and a half times stronger than the team had expected, and about 800 times more powerful than the bombs that devastated Nagasaki and Hiroshima. The mushroom cloud was over four miles wide. 
From the safety of naval vessels outside the blast zone, scientists tried to measure the radiation with Geiger counters. But the fallout was so intense, their equipment didn't work. As the blast grew, some researchers wondered whether they might have accidentally ended the world. The cloud of radioactive matter spread rapidly to the neighboring Marshall Islands, showering the locals with toxic dust. The government mobilized to evacuate the affected population, but they couldn't move fast enough. While they waited for safe passage off the islands, the Marshall Islanders developed painful burns and skin lesions. They eventually received medical attention, but it was too late to stop long-term cellular damage. Over time, cancer rates skyrocketed, especially leukemia and thyroid cancer. According to some surveys, women from the Marshall Islands are now six times more likely to have cervical cancer than those in the United States. But the most notorious victims were the men on the Japanese fishing boat Lucky Dragon No. 5. The crew was asleep at the time of the test, but the roar of an explosion woke them up. The men were all veterans of the Second World War, so they braced themselves for impact. Giant waves buffeted the boat, causing it to bob up and down, but it stayed afloat. For a second, the crew breathed a sigh of relief, but they didn't know that the worst was yet to come. Following the explosion, radioactive dust rained down for five hours, not knowing what it was, the fishermen touched the material. One even licked it. Within hours, they began to feel dizzy and ill. Eventually, Lucky Dragon Number 5 headed back towards Japan, about 2,000 nautical miles away. During the long journey, their symptoms worsened. Nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting plagued them every day. Where each crewman had touched the ash, Blisters appeared on their skin. Their hair fell out. They radioed ahead to Yaizu Port, saying the entire crew would need medical attention as soon as they arrived. When they finally reached Japan, all 23 crew members were rushed to a hospital. After months of treatment, most of them recovered, except for their chief radio operator. His cirrhosis of the liver had been aggravated by the radiation poisoning and he died six months later. Worse still, the survivors became stigmatized because the public incorrectly believed radiation poisoning was contagious. Back in the United States, media outlets latched onto the story. The Seattle Daily Times covered the unexpectedly large blast and its fallout, writing, Force of latest U.S. H-bomb blast too great to measure. This headline ran on March 17th, a week before the first windshield pits appeared in Bellingham. The timing was hard to ignore. Some law enforcement officers suspected that tiny irradiated particles could have blown over from the Bikini Atoll and other weapon testing sites. Perhaps the strange gray gravel some locals found on their windshields was radioactive dust. It's not too hard to imagine. Today, experts say the Marshall Islands are 10 times more radioactive than Chernobyl. And if the fallout had blown all the way to the Seattle area, 
Those with dented windshields worried they too had become collateral damage. To know for sure, Harley Bovey and other University of Washington scientists gathered samples of the gray dust and ran tests. They found that when they set the debris next to a lead pencil, the rubble reacted violently. Accounts are vague, so it's unclear what exactly happened or what they meant by violently. But humans have used lead to protect themselves from radiation since the 1940s. Researchers like Bovey likely already associated lead with radiation. Perhaps for him, the pencil test cemented the idea that he was handling nuclear material. But lead doesn't have a violent reaction when it interacts with radiation. In fact, it blocks atomic energy. Science writer Nofit Amir explained the interaction between lead and radiation as being like a game of pool. Usually, radiation spreads from atom to atom the same way one cue ball hits all the other balls and sends them rolling across the table. But let's imagine you used more than the standard 22 pool balls. Maybe you completely cover the table, so there's no room for them to roll around. Then, it wouldn't matter how hard you hit the cue ball. When it knocked against the others, they'd absorb its energy and barely move. In simple terms, that's how lead works. It's made of dense atoms, like a table full of pool balls. When radioactive energy, the cue ball, hits the lead, it has nowhere to go and ultimately dissipates. In other words, if you held radioactive material against a piece of lead, you wouldn't produce a violent reaction. The opposite should happen. The nuclear energy should decrease, not increase. But Bovey wanted to be thorough, so he conducted one more test to see if the gray dust had any nuclear components. He and his team ran Geiger counters over it. And they detected no traces of radiation at all. It appeared the nuclear age had spared Washington State. As we discussed last time, Bovey's research more or less petered out at some point. After ruling out every explanation, he wasn't any closer to figuring out why so many windshields had developed pits and marks. So he essentially gave up. But his partner wasn't so easily discouraged. Another researcher from the University of Washington, Otto Larson, spent years studying the dints and dings. But instead of testing glass and debris, he focused on the people who were affected. And based on their testimony, he ultimately concluded that Seattle's broken windshield epidemic never actually happened. Coming up, we discuss how the pits may have come from people's minds. And now, back to the story. In April 1954, pits appeared on windshields throughout the United States, with most cases concentrated in the Seattle area. Nobody knew what caused the damage, but two University of Washington scientists tried to solve the mystery. Harley Bovey couldn't come up with a working hypothesis, but his partner, Otto Larson, made progress. 
Larson, with the help of his students, phoned Seattle residents at random and found that most people had read about the pits in the newspaper before seeing any damage with their own eyes. This was a key detail when he co-authored and published his analysis in 1958. Unlike today, reporting wasn't instantaneous in the 1950s. Many papers in the Pacific Northwest didn't pick up the windshield pitting story until days or weeks after the initial reports were filed. But consistently, an outbreak would hit a town after the story made it into the local paper. As we discussed last time, the marks on the windshields were small and easy to overlook. It's possible that some people had dints and dings in the glass for years without noticing them. Then, after reading the news, they stepped outside to give their car a thorough examination. Suddenly, they spotted the old wear and tear in the glass. Even though it wasn't new, it appeared to be because the car owner had overlooked it for so long. This scenario would also explain why the epidemic ended as quickly as it had started. It took a few days for all the local car owners to see the news story and notice the damage on their vehicles. But once they'd spotted the pits, there was nothing new to report. It takes a long time for those sorts of blemishes to appear. So even if people were regularly checking their windshields, most wouldn't see any additional dents. And without any new testimony, the media moved on to fresher stories. If a nationwide paper like the New York Times or the Washington Post had covered the epidemic, the phenomenon might have spread further or lasted longer. But since it remained fairly local, the reports died down after a few weeks. But there's one detail we can't account for in this scenario. The consistency in the witness reports. Almost every motorist described the pits in the exact same way, divots that were smaller than a dime. If thousands of people were just noticing old wear and tear for the first time, you'd expect more variety. There would be reports of deep cracks, larger divots, and other irregularities. The Seattle Crime Laboratory's Sergeant Max Allison argued that maybe the pit reports were consistent because people were imagining the marks. Of all the cases in the city, he estimated about 5% were due to random vandalism. The remaining 95% he attributed to what he called mass hysteria. Today, mass hysteria is called mass psychogenic illness. It happens when a community becomes fixated on a story that has no basis in reality. For example, when people thought aliens were invading, during Orson Welles' fictional War of the Worlds radio broadcast on October 30th, 1938. To qualify as mass psychogenic illness, a widely held delusion needs to fit certain criteria. Usually, some sort of catalytic event triggers the phenomenon, and then it spreads through the community. It's usually accompanied by physical symptoms that don't have any clear medical cause. For example, People might experience dizziness, headaches, hallucinations, or seizures, but doctors won't be able to diagnose them with any underlying condition. Some individuals are more susceptible to mass psychogenic illness than others. The phenomenon tends to crop up in communities that are under immense stress, and usually 
It spreads between people with strong social bonds, like friends or family. And those who witness the inciting event firsthand are more likely to get drawn into the outbreak. The most famous example may be the Salem witch trials at the tail end of the 17th century. After several young women grew sick, which is considered the catalytic event, they blamed their seizures and fainting spells on witches, and their families and neighbors who shared a social bond with them believed them. The community was likely more susceptible to mass psychogenic illness thanks to the stress and anxiety caused by their rapidly shifting local politics, a smallpox outbreak, and economic inequality. Soon, the delusions spread through the area, leading to hundreds of charges of witchcraft and 25 executions. But there's one problem with calling the Seattle broken windshield epidemic a mass psychogenic illness. It didn't exactly have a catalyst. The closest possibility we have is the newspaper reports, but those covered damage that had already been spotted. However, it's possible that the first handful of pitting incidents were real. Then, news stories about a genuine incident triggered a mass psychogenic illness in other towns, especially because the people of Washington had plenty of reason to be on edge. As we mentioned, there was the looming threat of nuclear strikes as the world rapidly industrialized after World War II. But this unease didn't translate into physical symptoms. There's no indication that anybody felt sick once they spotted the damage on their windshields, which is another reason this situation doesn't seem to be a case of mass psychogenic illness. However, it could have been a collective delusion. This is when many people share the same mistaken belief, but it doesn't provoke any medical maladies. To be clear, everyone has some notions that aren't true. For example, you might think a certain red shirt is lucky, even though you don't have any evidence to back up that belief. But your belief isn't necessarily a delusion. So long as your superstition doesn't interfere with your critical thinking, there's nothing wrong with it. But if several people shared your conclusion, and if everyone let it drive their decision-making, it could be classified as a collective delusion. Let's imagine everyone in your social circle agrees that good things happen when you wear the red blouse, and they refuse to leave their homes unless you're with them and wearing the lucky article of clothing. Then the belief spreads further within the community. Or in this case, more and more people in the Pacific Northwest become convinced that someone or something is putting pits in their car's windshields. They let it dictate their behavior, rushing outside multiple times a day to check on their cars and waving down police officers to report minor damage. We know people stopped filing reports after about three weeks, but we don't know how long the anxiety lingered after the final emergency call. Four years after the epidemic ended, Larson's paper detailed exactly how the public had duped itself. But he noted that it's possible multiple factors were at play. The people of Washington may have been involved in a collective delusion which was exacerbated by the fact that there were more pits appearing. As we discussed last time, 
It's common for windshields to develop cracks and pockmarks due to regular wear and tear. Bits of sand, pebbles, and even insects get kicked up on the road, striking vehicles. Drivers in the 1950s may not have known this. After all, cars were getting cheaper by the day, and many people were first-time owners. Plus, they were traveling faster than ever before. Just three years earlier, in March 1951, Washington State raised their speed limit from 50 to 60 miles per hour. Maybe, before the increase, most cars didn't kick up so many high-velocity projectiles and their windshields never pitted. It also makes sense that people would fixate on windshields given how rapidly automotive culture was taking hold in the United States. Cases of mass delusions tend to reflect larger societal values and concerns. For example, in 2010, the United States Department of Agriculture reported that honeybee populations had dropped 34%. It didn't take long for the media to cover the bees' alleged disappearance. Experts and journalists speculated that this was related to climate change and the Environmental Protection Agency put together a task force to investigate it. Then, they shocked the world by concluding that honeybees weren't vanishing. In fact, worldwide, there were more than ever before. The decline the Department of Agriculture had observed was a phenomenon known as colony collapse disorder, which is a normal, natural fluctuation in bee population. But that finding wasn't enough to stop the alarmist news coverage. The misinformation about honeybees dying out fed into a larger collective delusion built on genuine anxiety about climate change and ecological collapse. In 1954, most people weren't worried about global warming, but they were afraid of an atomic war. Larson's analysis suggested that the windshield phenomenon may have actually helped people manage their fear of nuclear Armageddon. Supposedly, it was comforting to think that nuclear fallout had pitted windshields. If this was the worst result of atomic weapons tests, then Washington residents wouldn't have to worry about cancer, radiation poisoning, or instant vaporization. Plus, People often feel better if they have a sense of control over their circumstances. They couldn't stop the government from starting a nuclear war with the Soviet Union, but they could call the police to report a pitted windshield. With one emergency phone call, Pacific Northwesterners felt a sense of personal agency. Especially when they got President Eisenhower on the line. Larson theorized that the pitting epidemic ended as soon as the people felt like they could control it. That's what helped people move on, not the official reports declaring this was a mass delusion. Which means it ultimately doesn't matter what created the pits. As far as we can tell, it wasn't a harmful delusion. No one got sick. And whether the culprit was a vandal, an electromagnetic wave, ordinary wear and tear, or even aliens, the real story was about people's reaction to the damage, not in the pits themselves. In other words, for Seattle's broken windshield epidemic, perception was everything. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Seattle's broken windshield epidemic, amongst the many sources we used, we found Otto Larson and Nahum Medallia's article, Diffusion and the Belief in a Collective Delusion, the Seattle Windshield Pitting Epidemic, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Matthew Teamstra with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Cara Mackerline, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 